So we're going we're gonna to have an old-fashioned Living Word University Bible study tonight. And uh, so, I, you know, if you have your Bibles, have them ready. If you have your Bible on your phone, that's great, too. Um, but uh, does everybody get a worksheet? Pretty good? Good, good. Awesome. Okay, now you can stand. <laughs> And if you would turn with me to the book of Mark, and we're going to start at the 22nd verse, and we're going to read down to verse 33. Very well-known miracle that Jesus performs. When you're there, say amen. All right. Verse 22, and he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he spit in his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Who, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom do ye say that I am? And it's impetuous Peter, who answereth and say unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should not tell no man of him. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly and Peter took him again uh, and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. In this particular passage, we, we find ourselves face to face with one of the strangest miracles that Jesus ever performed. Uh, quite unusual, um, certainly one of the oddest, but we know that nothing is ever in Scripture by chance. Can I get an amen? All right. So tonight, I want to talk to you from this topic. This is the way, and I will expound on that shortly. So if you'll pray with me, Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for your word, and we ask that it would bless all those that are in the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church says, amen, you may be seated.
By the way, you all look great tonight. When you read the book of Mark, you will find many, many incredible miracles that Jesus performed during his ministry. Miracles like the great catch of fish, the healing of the withered hand, Peter's mother-in-law being healed, the storm that was calm, the demoniac that was delivered, Jairus' daughter called back to life, the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking on water. And many of these miracles can be found in all the other Gospels. However, in this particular passage that we just read, the blind man healed at Bethsaida is exclusive to the book of Mark. Mark is the only one that writes about this miracle. I might also add that this particular miracle has a lot of very rich spiritual principles in it that I'll merely make a note of, and it'll be on your worksheets, and then you guys can expound on it in your own time. Um, so there's this blind man, and um, these men, friends of this blind man, bring him to Jesus, that Jesus would heal him. And um, they've just gotten a little bit of ways. This is right in the area where Jesus got done feeding the 5,000. And um, this man has probably been blind since birth and clearly needs a healing and is being brought to Jesus for healing by his friends. So spiritual principle number one that you can study out later is that Jesus comes to us in our greatest time of need. We don't need too much studying with that. It's pretty clear cut. <clears throat> Spiritual principle number two, the blind man's friends knew where to take him for transformation to Jesus, right? We all need transformation when we come to an altar, right? We come to Jesus. God has commissioned us to lead people to Jesus, so we kind of see it working both ways. We see Jesus coming to the man that needed the healing, and then we have the friends who grab the blind man and bring him to Jesus. So you kind of see it working both ways there. So Jesus leads this blind man out of the city, spits on his eyes, and touches him. Spiritual principle number three. The blind man was willing to be led by Jesus out of the city. Likewise, we must be willing to go wherever Jesus leads us. And then Jesus asked, that was on your worksheet, by the way. Then Jesus asked him an interesting question, can you see? And the blind man responds and says, yeah, I can see, but I see men as trees walking. And when the blind man first came to Jesus, he couldn't see anything at all. He was totally blind. Now he can see, but his sight is limited. He can see, but he can't see clearly yet. Jesus proceeds to touch the man's eyes again, and now he sees every man clearly. The healing is complete. Spiritual principle number four, sometimes our miracle comes in stages. Just because you don't see it at first doesn't mean you stop believing. Doesn't mean you stop fasting, you stop praying. God works in ways that we don't understand. 
and sometimes healings come in stages. So I think we can all agree this is kind of an odd miracle. And yet Mark places it here in his gospel as an illustration of a point that he's trying to make. And this is where we're going to kind of dive into this, and I get to use a really cool word. Um, <clears throat> in order to understand why Mark wanted to use this particular miracle in his gospel, as well as why he strategically put it in the middle of his gospel, we need to understand a literary technique that Mark utilizes throughout his entire book. This is really cool if you'll stay with me. It's called intercalation. And I think I have the, the definition out of Webster's. It's to insert or position between or among existing elements or layers. Kind of difficult to understand. A more it's more commonly known, or another common word used for intercalation is sandwiched. Hence the burger. There's no other gospel writer that uses this technique, and it's a, it's a fascinating technique. Sandwiching is when the author will place an event between the beginning and the end of another event. Think of, it like, um, think of it like a play. You have act one, and act one starts in a play, and then it suddenly stops, and you get act two, which is a completely different scene. And then when you get here, you get the end of act one. It picks up where it stopped here. So this particular scene, act two, is sandwiched in between act one. Does that make sense? I really wish I had a whiteboard. <laughs> I got agreement there. <clears throat> the goal of intercalation is to express a theme or a principle by comparing or contrasting two events. Okay? So, you'll see them on your worksheet, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through them here real quick. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark 11. I want to show you... What what this is. It's so cool. So Mark 11, <clears throat> Jesus sandwiches Jesus' cleansing of the temple. I'm sorry, Mark sandwiches Jesus' cleansing of the temple between the cursing of the fig tree and the disciples' later discovery of the withered tree. Let me show you what I mean. Chapter 11, verse 12. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And we go into the fig tree deal. And that goes down to verse 14. And then all of a sudden, it stops. And then in verse 15, it says, And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Okay? That story goes down to verse 19. And then all of a sudden, we're going back to the fig tree again. And when even was come, he went out of the city, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree, blah, blah, blah. And it goes, that goes all the way down to verse 26. So um, what's the point of that? Mark is showing that the withering of the fig tree, like the temple clearing, 
represents God's judgment against Israel for their unbelief. So he uses both stories, two stories, but he sandwiches one of them completely in the middle. And this is a technique he uses all through Mark. I know you're excited, so we're going to do another one. Go to verse 5, or I'm sorry, chapter 5. And you have the raising of Jairus' daughter sandwiching or framing the woman with the issue of blood. So in verse 21 of chapter 5, you get in when Jesus was passed over again by the ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. So you get this beginning of this story of Jairus. Then all of a sudden, boom, in verse 25, it just stops. Jairus' story stops. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things, and it goes through the story of the woman with the issue of blood, all the way down to verse 35, where it goes back to Jairus' story again. And both of these episodes, the point that Mark's trying to make is it's emphasizing the importance of faith. That's what he's doing. But it's an interesting technique he uses. Um, I'll give you one more. Chapter 6. And go to verse 7. So this is when Jesus is calling the 12 um, uh, uh, together, and he's going to send them out two by two. And, he, and he's going to give them power over unclean spirits in verse 7. And, and he sends them out. And then all of a sudden, in verse 14, that story ends, and we jump right to King Herod, who's getting ready to take off the head of John the Baptist. And that story will go all the way down to verse 29. And then in verse 30, you have the disciples returning to Jesus, telling him all the wonderful things that he had done, that what they had done through him. And so you get this idea of um, pointing to the fact that John's death illustrates the willingness of a true disciple to lay down his life for his kingdom. And the disciples will learn this later on. Um, Mark also uses this technique to contrast. Um, go to chapter 14. Uh, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 53, my fault. Verse 53, chapter 14, verse 53. And what you have is you have Jesus being led away to the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. And it's this whole scene of him literally um, beginning to be framed so that he could be put to death. But Jesus, through the through this is keeping the faith. He's going to do the will of the Father, right? And then all of a sudden, it stops, 
and I'll tell you right where it stops. And it goes right to Peter, who's standing out at the fire in verse uh, 68. And it goes, and, and now we're talking about Peter's denial of Jesus. And then Mark goes right back again to the trial of Jesus and how Jesus is standing tall. He's doing the will of the Father. He's not arguing. Mark uses this technique to contrast Jesus' faithfulness to the plan of God and Peter's denial of Jesus. So he uses it in that method also. So, those are the examples that are on your sheet. And um, there's a couple more in here, but I'm not going to go into it. But it's a technique that Mark uses to emphasize a point. And in order to understand why he uses this miracle of um, the blind man at Bethsaida, we need to ask a question. And this is the question that Mark asks and the reason why he writes his entire gospel. Um, the question Mark tries to answer in his gospel is, who is this man, Jesus? And that's on your worksheet. Who is this man, Jesus? That's the question and the only question that Mark wants to answer in the gospel. So you get, um, in chapter 1 of Mark, you get somebody answering that question four times in the first chapter. And the fourth time, it's in chapter 1, verse 24, and it is the demons that are actually identifying who Jesus is. It says, we know exactly who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And so the demons get it, but nobody else quite gets it yet. And in the third chapter of Mark, the crowd see Jesus as a very intriguing man who does a lot of wonderful things, and the religious leaders see Jesus as a guy that completely infuriates them. And the disciples, of all people who should understand who Jesus is, don't have a clue. They don't get it yet. In chapter 4, Jesus rebukes the wind, and the disciples look at each other in verse 41, the last, chapter, uh, last verse of chapter 4, say, who is this guy? Who is one that can calm the winds? Just speak it out. Who is he? Chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000, walks on water, climbs in the boat with them, and the disciples are still confused. And then finally we get to chapter 8, which is where our reading comes from tonight. And the disciples cap off their confusion with a discussion, actually an amusing concern, with Jesus. Um, that ch chapter 8 starts out with Jesus feeding another uh, 4,000 people. He's already fed 5,000. Now he feeds 4,000. And after the miracle, Jesus and the disciples get in a boat, but there's a problem. The disciples didn't bring any food with them. They fed 4,000, and they didn't keep any for themselves. And verse 16 says, they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, if I were to take a vote in here, I would probably feel pretty confident in saying you would agree to me when I would say Jesus has no problem making food for disciples. Right? And the disciples are having this discussion in the boat. We're hungry. We didn't bring any food. And Jesus 
in his frustration with the disciples, starts asking a number of questions starting in verse 17. It goes all the way to verse 21. And in verse 21, he says, do you not understand? You haven't figured this out yet, guys? I've been with you through eight chapters, and you still haven't figured this out. So, do they understand clearly? No, they don't. They don't understand who he is. And they appear to be completely blinded. I think that's on your worksheet. They appear to be completely blinded to the reality that they were in the boat with the promised Messiah. And it's at this moment that we get the miracle about the blind man. And so we get all of this. We get the miracle of the blind man. In verse 27, this is the key point. Jesus asks his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And the disciples say, some say you are John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, some even say you're one of the prophets. And it's interesting to note that the disciples do not say that some people think he's the Messiah. People have not said he's the Messiah. Then Jesus gets a little bit more pointed, and in verse 29, he asks, but whom say ye that I am? And then out of the blue, again, we have... Peter, who completely shocks us and says, you are the Christ. What, Jesus, what Peter is saying is, we believe you are the anointed one, the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, and the anointed king. We believe that every prophet, priest, and king in the Old Temple Testament was a, simply a type of the one who was to come. And you are that one. You are the one whom we have all been waiting for. We believe that you are the Messiah. Peter finally gets it. The veil is you know, moved aside. The disciples see who Jesus is. But then there's a slight turn in the road, because in verse 30, Jesus tells his disciple not to tell anyone about this revelation. Wait a minute, we just, we answered a big question, Jesus. I mean, we're eight chapters into this. We finally get it. We understand you're the Messiah. What do you mean we can't tell anybody? But he says, no, you can't tell anyone. I don't want you to tell anyone. They had the right answer. Or did they? He tells them to stop because they understood the term Messiah right, but the interpretation of that term and the type of Messiah it was, they didn't get that yet. Verse 31, Jesus begins to teach them, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed after three days. So before this verse, Jesus had never talked about suffering. If you go through the book of Mark, from 1 to chapter 8, he never talks about suffering. Mark doesn't write about it at all. It's not till after this incident where he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? that now he begins to teach them about what it is, the type of Messiah that he's going to be. What he's trying to get them to understand is he is the Messiah, but he's also clarifying 
what kind of Messiah he is. Jesus wasn't just the Messiah, but he was coming as the suffering Messiah. They had no idea what that was before chapter 8. Jesus had come to die. He was going to be obedient to the will of God. He is focused. He knows exactly where he's headed. Jesus is headed to the cross. But in three days, he will rise, and the salvation of mankind will have been purchased by his blood. And, And the great paradox of the cross is that it's an instrument of death, but that instrument of death brings life. That's an incredible paradox. And Jesus starts in chapter 9, unpackaging the revelation of the suffering Messiah. So Jesus now begins to give signs and show, you you begin to read in the Gospel of Mark, all these little things that pop up that kind of confirm what Jesus is telling them, that he's going to die and he's going to rise again. And you see that after the transfiguration, and that's another There's imagery in that right there that speaks of resurrection. They come down from the mountain, and the disciples, um, they come upon the father with the young boy um, who's possessed by demons, and Jesus comes along, and he speaks to the spirits in verse 25. Notice what it says in verse 26 and 27. It says, And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and the boy, he was as dead in so much that many said, he is dead. He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So Mark is starting to put into this and and back up what Jesus is saying about, and he puts different images of this. So Jesus will go on and speak about his death over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark. That's the whole point of Mark's gospel, is to answer that question. Who is this man, Jesus? And Mark will give us the bookends of the whole gospel at the beginning. He says, this is the um, gospel of Jesus the Christ and the Son of God. And so you get from chapters 1 through 8, Jesus as the Christ, and then you go through the rest of the book, and it concludes with the centurion at the cross, when Jesus takes his last breath, what does he say? Truly, this was the Son of God. So you get two bookends, Christ and Son of God. And that's why Mark starts his gospel out that way, to show you that. <clears throat> so how does the blind man fit into all this? I know you've been dying to get to that point. So to answer that, let me ask this. At this moment, in chapter 8, Did the disciples know that Jesus was the Messiah? Yes, right? Peter declared it. Now let me ask you this. Did they understand what kind of Messiah he was? Not yet. He hadn't really gone into that detail yet. In other words, the disciples finally see Jesus, but they don't see him clearly. The blind man initially could see, but he couldn't see clearly yet because he saw men as trees walking. Okay? Mark's purposely sandwiching this in here to make a point that from chapters 1 through 8, they see Jesus as Messiah. They see him as the one that is going to, you know, you hear people, people are thinking they're going to, 
He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's their Messiah. He's their deliverer. You're right. He is the Messiah. But Jesus says, no, there's a bigger purpose here. I am the suffering Messiah. I'm the one that's going to come and be apprehended by the enemy, put to death, and rise again. Whoa, whoa. The disciples initially saw it, but they did see clearly, and it would take the rest of the book to answer that question. And so from this moment on, Mark answers a new question, and that new question is, what kind of Christ is he? And that is the question that needed to have answered by the end of the book. And so it's here at the center of the Gospel of Mark where Mark is transitioning from that one question to the next. We have this odd story where the disciples could see, but they don't see clearly. The blind man was touched, but he couldn't see yet. The second touch, he could see clearly. And the point of the miracle is to say that we can see things, but not necessarily see them clearly. And so the reason for this story is to emphasize the fact that Peter saw the deal as him as Messiah, but didn't see it clearly as suffering Messiah. And it's why Mark places this in the exact center of his gospel. This story is the hinge on which the whole gospel of Mark swings. It swings Messiah, right? And then it swings to suffering Messiah. It changes. The whole storyline changes. Jesus is, all the stories, everything, the parables he tells, the conversations is all about the suffering Messiah. It changes completely after the story of the blind man. And that's why Mark uses this. Disciples needed to understand the bigger picture of what Jesus was going to do to impact eternity. He also needed them to understand that this walk of dying to self in order to bring God glory was going to be their walk. It's going to be our walk. Amen. You can tell how excited you are about that. They thought they saw what following Jesus was all about. I mean, think about it first eight chapters, he's healing people, he's feeding 5,000, he's feeding 4,000. People are coming from everywhere to come see him. For lack of a better term, he's kind of a rock star, right? And the disciples are his posse. And this is what, they see him doing all these great things, and people are loving on Jesus, but they don't have a clue why he came. They needed to see why he came, because he was going to demand that same thing. From them. That makes sense? Discipleship demands sacrifice. Amen? Discipleship demands giving up something you love more than anything else or anyone else for his sake. If you wonder if you're ready to walk the path that Jesus walked, consider the following questions. Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing some of your closest friends? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means alienating, alienation from your family? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means the loss of your reputation? Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your job? 
Are you willing to follow Jesus if it means losing your life? The phrase, what would Jesus do? I love Rico. <clears throat> so years and years ago, my email was so WWJD. So what would Jesus do? And lo and behold, Rico comes in the church and I get his email. And yours is WWJD, right? What a great email. But every time we have a question, every time we have a decision, every time we have to you know, ponder on something and, and do something, what should we be asking? What would Je Jesus do, right? What would Jesus do in this situation? I needed that at the time. What would Jesus do? We have to ask ourselves, what would he do in particular situations in our life? His cross was to save us. Our cross is to save others. I think I'm going to say it again. His cross was to save us. Our cross is to save others. My kids, when we're working, we, they'll watch this show called, uh-oh, what was it called? Say it again? Mandalorian. It's like a Star Wars thing. And I'm, I'm watching it with them, and we're working, and all of a sudden, this guy, this the hero, gets done with this battle, and they're explaining... You know, it's the way it's been done for years and years. And he goes, this is the way. And I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. I'll tell you why. Because I've been working on this lesson. In the book of Mark, Mark uses this term, on the way, 16 times in his gospel. It's used more than any other gospel. And what does it mean? It means that Jesus is on his way to the cross. It, you go through Mark and you look it up. On the way, by the way, on the way. He's always on the way. He's on the way to the cross. He's on the way to self-denial. He's on his way to fulfilling the purpose of the Father. And so it's like this is the way. This is the way that we live our lives, right? This is the way. Ironically, and I just confirmed it with my good friend Rico over here, in the book of Acts, that was the name of the first church, The Way. That's kind of cool. Come on now. That's really cool. Mark goes on, on the way, on the way, and then the church is called The Way. What is The Way? Well, he showed us what The Way was. Self-denial picking up your cross, following him. That is the way. Did the disciples figure out and eventually see clearly, as Mark described the healing of the blind man after the second touch, did they finally figure out what this suffering Messiah was all about? Did they figure out what the way was that they had to walk? Andrew died on a cross. Simon was crucified, Bartholomew was flayed alive, James the son of Zebedee was beheaded, James the son of Alphaeus was beaten to death, Thomas was run through with a lance, 
Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Matthew was slain by the sword. Peter was crucified upside down. Thaddeus was shot to death with arrows. Philip was hanged. It was only John that lived out his natural life. I would say that they saw clearly. To follow the way means thirsting after God until we are totally satisfied. It means hungering after God to the point of death if need be. It means desiring the things of God more than anything else in our lives. Jesus, in other denominations, becomes a savior. He's more than a savior. He has to be our Lord. Everything, everything we do, our motivation, our purpose, our walk, our conversations, everything has to bring glory to him. That's why we do this. It's for him. It's not just Savior. It's Lord. It may shake our foundations. It may topple our priorities, pit us against our friends and family, make us strangers in this world. But until we fully surrender to the concept of the cross, we don't understand the blessing of walking with him. We don't understand the way. Jesus' question to each one of us tonight is the same as the one he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And your answer defines how clearly you see him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this word, God, and we just ask God, God, that as each day goes on, God, revelation, God, would continually follow, not only in our private time, in our secret place, but God, in conversations and in fellowship. We want to see you more clearly as you are, God. Help us to walk in the way, God. Help us to deny the flesh, God, and, and walk in purpose and destiny of the way you have called us to do, God. I pray a blessing over each person in here tonight, God. Bless them mightily, God, as they go home. Keep them safe and let them return safely on Sunday. God, we ask this all in your mighty name. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.